Oh, good morning. Oh, how are you guys doing? Oh, good. Good. Good morning. Yeah. Uh, man, my name is Marco. As you guys get comfortable, take your seats. Uh, my name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. Uh, man, if you are new, a couple of things, or if you've been joining us for the past couple of weeks, a couple of things for you. Number one, we love coffee. Hope you grabbed one. Number two, on the chair, there are these connect cards. Fill one out, drop it in the offering basket. We'd love to hang out with you uh, or even just answer any of the questions you may have for us, um, like all the beards. That's a general question that we get. Uh, and then finally, number three, uh, on the chairs, including uh, our Connect desk in the back, in the back, excuse me, uh, we have several Bibles. Uh, man, if you need a Bible to follow along, uh, please grab one. Grab one from the Connect desk. Grab one from the chairs that are in front of you. That is our gift to you. Uh, and just uh, saying thanks for hanging out with us this morning. Um, I'm going to ramble for a little bit, and uh, while I do that, if you would like to open or load your Bibles, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Uh, Titus is a, is a short book in the New Testament. It is the four Hebrews, right? Everybody knows, except if you have like a, an app, then you're just looking through the titles. Anyway, it's a small book right before Hebrews. Uh, it's in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul. While you go ahead and open and load your Bible to chapter 1, I'm going to go ahead and ramble a little bit. So a couple of weeks ago, we ended our, our summer series on the Beatitudes, and last week we started a new series uh, in Titus titled uh, Confidence, Conviction, and Conduct. Um, last week, we, we kind of unpacked a lot of things that Paul um, introduced right from the get-go of his letter. Uh, uh, our main idea for our time last week was that the grace of God inspires godliness, that the grace of God inspires not only who we are, but what we do. In light of that, salvation also compels us into mission, that we want to share the good news of Jesus with those who don't know him because, man, God has sought us and loved us loved us and so uh, has done so so well and has done so so much that he sent his son to die for sinners on a cross. And so in light of that magnificent truth, that should not only humble the believer in light of salvation, but that should also compel the believer to go out and preach and share the good news of Jesus to those who don't know him. Today, we're going to be looking at a couple of more things that are a little more specific, namely church leadership. One of the things I want you to notice that as we walk through this letter to Titus, Titus is a young pastor on the island of Crete. And Paul has sent him here, and this is touching up a little bit on verse 5, but Paul has sent him here essentially to establish church leadership and governance in the churches on the island of Crete. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we dive into our time. So Paul has sent Titus, a young pastor, to go and plant churches on the island of Crete or to establish leadership and or governance in these churches. And one of the things that you notice in this letter from Paul to Titus is that he doesn't really spend a lot of time uh, in, in praise and in thanksgiving. If you've read through the New Testament, particularly if you have read uh, the letters of the Apostle Paul, he usually has a very dear and kind introduction 
uh, and then he jumps into some sort of thanksgiving to that person or that people. And then he goes into unpack theology that is relevant to their context. The second half of his letter tends to be the application of that theology for that church. What we see in Titus is that he doesn't necessarily spend time doing that. Instead, he actually writes a lengthy introduction of not only who he is, but why he's writing to Titus. And then he jumps into the letter with Titus, not going into Thanksgiving, not necessarily going into theology, though he does, but he writes to Titus with urgency. He writes to Titus with clarity. He writes to Titus to push him and exhort him to plant these churches, which suggests that a lot of the churches in Crete were young and they needed help. They maybe were just first established or they just got planted. And so Titus was that guy that went in, again, to establish church leadership uh, and governance, right? And so when we read through Titus, he is very clear, Paul that is, Paul is very clear and Paul jumps right into his uh, encouragement to Titus. And so today I want to give a brief preface before I read the text for our time. Here, here's what I'll say. So the text has everything to do with the qualifications of an elder or a pastor. And so we're going to walk through that. Now, that tends to pose a couple of things. Number one, some people, well, I shouldn't say, some of you may want to check out oh, well, I'm not a pastor. I don't think I'm going to be a pastor. That's definitely not not me. So that's something uh, I'm going to check out on. Uh, I would encourage you to not check out because I would uh, submit this to you that this is for you, which leads into the preface. The preface is that several, if not all of the characteristics that we're going to be walking through, not necessarily all of the skills, but the characteristics that we're going to be walking through here in Titus apply to all Christians. So when Paul is talking, talking about being hospitable, it's not just saying pastors are the only ones who are to be hospitable, right? These are characteristics that apply to all Christians. So I want to make that very clear. Number two, while this is specific to the call and qualification of a pastor or an elder, I also want to address in particular the men. And I'll tell you why at the end. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> So with that being said, let me dive into verses five through nine. Uh, I'll read them, I'll pray, and then, and then we'll go into our time. So this is what Paul writes to Titus, beginning in verse nine. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Join me in prayer. God, as we continue to worship you through the preached word, through us diving into your word, God, I pray that you would, man, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, that your Holy Spirit would convict uh, and compel us to, to repent, to confess and repent of our sin, to fix our eyes on your son, Jesus. 
God, I also ask that you would set me aside and that it would be your Holy Spirit speaking and working through your word. God, I also uh, wish to lift up, uh, man, the several, the many, many, many churches that are gathered this morning um, who are celebrating, who are worshiping you. I pray for the preachers who are teaching from your word. I pray that you would give them grace and strength as they lead their churches. And God, we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for your word. I pray that we would be receptive to what you have for us and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be transformed into the image of Jesus. And we ask all of these things in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. Everybody ready? All right, we got several sections to unpack. If you've been with us for some time, you know I walk through uh, breaking down lots of different sections. All of the notes are on our app in the event you're wondering what are these sections. The first thing that I want to walk through is the godly leader, the godly pastor. Before we dive into verses 5 through 9, I want to establish a couple of things. I want to be clear about a couple of things. Number one is that a faithful and godly pastor leads for the glory of God and the good of the people. I'll say that one more time. A godly pastor leads for the glory of God, not his own, but for the glory of God and the good of his people. And while the call to pastoral ministry is specific, I want you to know that the main person who leads this church is Jesus Christ that he is our chief shepherd, which implies two things for the pastor. Number one, he is an under shepherd. Number two, that he is God's steward, that God has entrusted him with a congregation to lead, to shepherd, to care for, to preach to, to teach. He has entrusted them which suggests that the congregation, the things that the pastor has are not formally his, but that they belong to God. And that this position of the pastorate has been appointed to him by God. So I want to make those things clear. As we unpack verse 5, we're going to see that Paul leaves Titus in Crete so that he could appoint what remained into order. And he says, appoint elders in every town. Before we get into the, 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 the rest of this time, I want to take some time to unpack where we stand on the pastorate and what it is meant by a plurality of leadership. The first thing I want to talk about is that Jesus leads his church in two offices. We're going to talk about one today, but Jesus leads his church in two offices and two offices only, and that is the office of elder and deacon. We believe that the word elder is synonymous with pastor, synonymous with bishop, synonymous with overseer. You can look at the Greek and it applies to the same thing. You could be looking at uh, presbyteros, uh, episkopos, and then even, uh, I can't remember the word for bishop, but they are all synonymous with one another. And so we use them interchangeably. That's number one that he leads his church through the office of eldership. For us at Storehouse, we believe that the office of elder or the office of pastoral ministry is reserved specifically for men. That has nothing to do with uh, anything other than the fact that God has created us equal but distinct. We also believe that that is congruent with 1 Timothy 3, Ephesians 5, and even Genesis 1. 
The second office, deacons, or I should say, let me finish one more thing about the pastorate. The role of the pastor, the role of pastors in this office is to lead the church through preaching, teaching, and prayer. That's equivalent to what is said in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 20. When we're looking at deacons, we believe that this office is open to both men and women. That deacons lead the church through serving. They lead the church through serving. They are like behind the scenes ninjas. Deacons don't like the spotlight ever, but they will meet the needs that you didn't even know existed. That's what makes them so cool, right? And we believe that this is uh, consistent with Acts 6, Romans 1, and I can't remember where else, but it's in Philippians. So I wanted to make that clear in light of the offices of elders and deacons. Number two, when it comes to the office of the pastorate, there are two things that I do wish to talk about because one of the things uh, or one of the questions that tends to come up is, well, what separates a pastor from the rest of everyone else? Is it because they are holier than thou? No, they drop the ball all the time. I drop the ball consistently and fall flat on my face. So there are two things that I'd like to distinguish. There's something called a general calling. You're not going to find this in your Bible, but uh, we will see the teaching of it. We will see a general calling, and then we will see a specific calling. The general calling, all that teaches is that as believers, we all share something in redemption and in responsibility. Namely, we share a call to salvation, that God in his goodness and his kindness has called us and rescued us from our sin to himself, a call to salvation. He has called us all to serve. For the believers, right, the body of believers, we are all called to serve. That is Ephesians 4, that we are one body, therefore we serve. In a nutshell, as part of a family, everybody has chores to do. Everybody has responsibilities. And then number three, a call to surrender that as believers, right, as believers, we are all called to pick up our cross daily, that we are to die to ourselves because it is no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us. That is a general calling in the sense that all believers share these wonderful truths in light of redemption and responsibility, When we're looking at the call of pastoral ministry, there are a few things that tend to happen, and we can look at this, though we won't because it'll take too long. We will look at this through the life of Paul. You can read the book of Acts. But what we see in the specific call to pastoral ministry is that there is a private calling, that there is a private and authentic calling upon a man. The next one is that there is a personal calling. In other words, that as God is revealing himself and particularly maybe calling this individual to pastoral ministry, there is this personal call that comes upon him that he must do this, not out of any form of self-satisfaction, not out of any form of some celebrity means or gain, but out of satisfaction uh, for the supremacy of Jesus and Jesus alone. And then finally, the third piece that we see is that there is public affirmation that this call doesn't just happen in the woods and then you just come out and say, hey man, I'm ready to be in pastoral ministry. No, this is confirmed publicly within the church body. And so that's what we mean when we're talking about general and specific calling. In short, to summarize that God calls men, he equips them, and they are affirmed by God's people for the pastorate. That's what we mean in a very brief setting of 
pastoral ministry, what it means for the pastor. Number three, Paul says, appoint leaders. So there is something called a plurality of elders or a plurality of leadership. Now, this is going to sound weird only because I'm the only pastor right now. But I would, I would say this, I would submit this to you. I don't want to be the only pastor, okay? I, I'm just putting that out there. I don't want to be the only pastor. Every time we see Paul uh, talk about elders or, or pa- the pastorate, he's always talking about it uh, uh, in, in a plural form. There are always other pastors, other elders. And very clearly, he tells Titus to appoint elders. So there is this team of elders that, uh, that happen in the local church. And for us, the reason we hold to a plurality of leadership is for several reasons. Number one, we believe that it is biblical. That's consistent with what the Bible says. Number two, health. Not just for the team itself, but for the church. Uh, As shepherds come onto this team, that means more and more people can be cared for, led, prayed over, met with. I realize, and this is uh, point number four on this, I realize that my gifting is very, very limited. Number three, accountability. Accountability is going to start at the top in terms of leadership dynamics. And so when we see accountability in a team of elders or in a plurality of leadership, that shows that there is a safe space where they are confessing sin to one another and holding them uh, to whatever it is they need, holding them accountable to several of the decisions they've made or some of the temptations they have. They are following up with them. They are caring for one another. They are discipling one another. They are preaching the gospel gospel to one another. There's accountability. Now, if the question is, and I just wanted to touch on this, if the question is, well, how, how are you, me? How, how am I held accountable if I'm the only one, right? Uh, I'll, I'll give you a really, really brief view of how I am held accountable, okay? Number one, my wife humbles me every day. That's, that's number one, right? Number two, right? Number two, uh, we have two men who are in uh, the pastoral candidacy right now. They're walking through a process. They speak into me constantly. Number three, we have a board. Our board here at Storehouse Community is responsible for three things, policy, procedure, and finances. So they speak into that. They make decisions in light of that. They hold me accountable even to decisions I want to make or that I bring up, right? Uh, Number four, my community group on Friday nights, right? Man, I don't think there hasn't been anyone that hasn't called me out in the past four years that we've been together as a group. And I love you guys for it. If you, some of you are sitting here. Thank you so much for that. Right? They, they call me out constantly. They are not impressed by any means. And I, and I love that about them. And then finally, another way that I am held accountable, as per our bylaws, this is turning into like a teaching, but anyway, as per our bylaws, there is something called the accountability board. This is a policy that has been signed by other pastors outside of Storehouse Community Church to where if our board ever thought, man, Marco's going off the rail, he's going nuts, they can go to these men, they can come in and remove me. Those guys include Pastor Jeff Neal out in Harlingen, Pastor Chris Elliott, Ruben Degollado, who's in Harlingen, and Pastor Mike, who's now part of BT. Some of you know who they are, some of you don't. That's cool, all right? So that's how I'm held accountable. Moving on. 
The next thing that is good about a plurality of leadership is gifting. I mentioned this earlier. I am well aware that I am limited in my gifting. By having a team, now those giftings expand. The church is better taken care of. Other things are introduced. Other methods are approached. There is health that comes with not only uh, accountability, uh, but with gifting. And so that's why we hold to a plurality of leadership. And that's all in light of verse 5. Now let's dive into some of these characteristics. Here's the first thing I want you to notice as we walk through, uh, at this point, I think it's 6 through 9. Here's what I want you to notice. As Paul begins to talk about the qualifications of an elder, he doesn't start with, man, his theology better be on point. He doesn't start with how well he teaches. He doesn't start with any of that. The first thing he starts with is the family. The first thing he starts with is the family. So what that tells us about the godly pastor is that his priority, his first church is his family. That's what it tells us. So this applies to me. This applies to you. If you're a husband, a father, if you aspire to be those things, if you aspire to pastoral ministry, the first thing that he addresses is your first church. That is your family. That a godly pastor, a godly leader is first faithful to his wife. He uses the word is above reproach and he uses it twice. And when we're talking about being above reproach, that means that no accusation can come against them. No, no accusation can come against them. That their life is worth imitating, right? Their life is worth imitating because of their faith, because of the perseverance that you see in their life and faith. And so when he says to be faithful to his wife, he means a slew of things. The husband of one wife, he is faithful to his wife. Gentlemen, that means that our wives are our standard of beauty. Now, when it comes to that, I want to expand on that because sometimes some bros, because that's what they are, some bros only talk about their wife in terms of how they look. Sometimes some bros only talk about how hot their wife is or how she looks physically, but never talks about the beauty of their wife in terms of the spiritual, in terms of what God is doing in her heart. That is incredibly telling of how you treat your wife by how you talk about her. Number two, that they are faithful to their wives sexually. Some people cringed. I don't want to talk about this. We are, right? We're going to talk about this, that the man is faithful to his wife. The godly pastor, the godly leader is faithful to his wife sexually. That is free from addiction of things like pornography, that is being held accountable to things like lust, that other men are speaking into that so that he can keep his eyes fixed, not only on Christ, but on the standard of beauty that has been entrusted to him. And then finally, number three is friendship. And we could talk about a lot more, but we just have too much to talk about. And the next one is friendship in light of faithful to his wife, that the godly pastor, the godly leader, right? Him and his wife have a wonderful friendship, right? They still laugh at each other. They still date each other. They still go on date nights with one another. Their friendship is constantly being developed. They're learning things about one another, right? They get to flirt and it looks weird. It makes other people uncomfortable, 
right? That they do all of these things. Many people believe that once you get married, the friendship ends, right? Many people believe that once you get married, it's time for the work, build your friendship, right? So that is the pastor, the godly leader, the godly pastor in terms of being faithful to his wife. The second thing that he says is that the godly pastor and leader is faithful to his children. He goes on to say, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination. I would agree with several commentators that when he talks about the word believers, it renders as the word faithful. The reason uh, I line up with those guys, the reason I would line up or I'd agree with that, that their children are faithful, is because if we apply scripture to scripture in 1 Timothy 3, he does not mention that children have to be believers, but that they are to be uh, raised well by their parents, that they are, the parents are to invest in them, that they are to behave. Uh, that's one. And then number two, no parent, no father can guarantee the salvation of their children. In light of that, though, being faithful to their children does mean that me as a father, I am faithful to raising my son. I am faithful to investing in him and pouring into him. I am faithful to spending time with him. I am faithful parents, uh, fathers, you are faithful to teaching your kids. Whether you teach formally or informally, you are communicating something about the gospel. Always, class is always in session with kids. Ask them. So the pastor's first responsibility is their first church. I should say it this way. The pastor's first priority after their relationship with God is their first church. To be faithful to their wife, to be faithful to their children. Moving on. He goes on to talk about godly conduct. Right? He says, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He mentions that again. And then he lists several things. We're going to count five. He lists five things that some, uh, a godly pastor, godly leader should not be. Right? As God's steward, the pastor has been entrusted with something that formally does not belong to him. Namely, the congregation, his, his family. The, as God's steward, the pastor has been entrusted with something that formally does not belong to him. Stewardship is meant to care for and to point to Christ. There is something wrong with us when we confuse stewardship for ownership. When we believe this is mine, therefore I can do whatever it is I want to do and lead however it is I want to lead. That is not biblical because we are called to be stewards. That the godly pastor, the godly leader is called to be a steward of all that he has been entrusted with, which means whatever it is that he has been entrusted with is not formally his, but it belongs to God. And so we look through a couple of things that he says not to be in terms of conduct. The first one he says is uh, someone who's not arrogant. They're not arrogant. What, is, what, is, uh, what does that mean? Right? When we're looking at that, that means someone who is not in it for their own self-interest, for their own self-ambition, that they, uh, man, they are in it for their own selfish desires, 
and not for God's will, that they disregard God's will, that they disregard God's people. This is the individual who is filled with pride and self-righteousness. This is not a godly pastor and this is not a godly leader. The opposite of, being, of not being arrogant is being humble. Humble first in light of what God has done for you. Humble in light of what he's doing in you and humble in light of what he's doing through you. Right? That you are to be humble. Not arrogant. I know... I've been in meetings with people who, before we even start, will, I use this word loosely, they will claim their position to whatever it is we're going to talk about for the purpose of establishing some sort of a dominant, for some sort of dominance and arrogance so that they don't feel dumb. Now, part of that is insecurity. The other part of that is called arrogance. That's called arrogance. We are to be humble, right? Elsewhere in scripture, we see that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Number two, not to be quick-tempered, right? This is someone who intimidates because they got a short fuse. This is someone who intimidates because of the position they, held, they hold, excuse me. This is someone who intimidates because they're chauvinistic, this is who I am. This is the position I've been uh, called to. This is the position I hold. And so they intimidate those that they are actually been entrusted with. Instead of being a steward, you are quick-tempered. You are a fool. The opposite of quick-tempered is being quick to listen. Quick to listen. Number three, drunkard. They are not to be a drunkard. That is, addicted to alcohol, especially, particularly when it impairs their sound judgments. I'll say a couple of things when it comes to this, okay? Number one, it says to not be a drunkard. That means that you are addicted to alcohol, where it impairs your sound judgment, where it distorts uh, your reality, where you're having too much. Everybody knows, right? We don't, I don't need to go into the Greek about what drunk means, Right? We all know what that means. In light of that, there are a couple of things that I would say. Number one, let's just put it on the table. Okay? He's not saying you can't drink. Okay? That's not what he's saying. If that's not your thing, that's cool. All right? If it is, be responsible. And not like Budweiser, be responsible. I'm talking about be responsible in the sense that you should not misuse you should not misuse Christian liberty for your foolish personal justification. Well, it doesn't say it's a sin, so I'm going to drink. I don't care. Be responsible in light of Christian liberty. Stop misusing it for your own selfish justification and waving some Christian liberty banner just so that you can say, I can do it. You look like a fool. And it stains the reputation of the church. So cut it out. In fact, don't cut it. Repent. We'll cut it out, but repent. Repent of that. Because you know what that is? You're more concerned with either what you can do or you're more concerned with what other people should not do instead of your self-righteousness. Repent. Repent. 
That's number whatever that was. Three. Number four. Oh, so the opposite of drunkard would be someone who is sober-minded. Number four, violent. Same thing. Don't need to go into the Greek, right? This is acts of violence, both verbally and physically abusive. Right? Both verbally and physically abusive. If you verbally, God forbid, if you physically abuse your wife, gentlemen, you are stupid. Okay? That's number one. Number two, don't look at your wife. Don't put your hand on her knee. Don't tell her we're not going to talk about this. You're seeing her out of the corner of your eye. Repent. Confess and repent before God and to your wife. You have been entrusted with someone whom he calls his daughter. And for selfish reasons, you think you are entitled to intimidation and any form of abuse because you're the man. You're a fool. And if you come up to me after service, like, I didn't like that. Doesn't mean it's not true. Repent. Here's the thing, and I'll, and I'll touch this in, with my wife. By God's grace, you can tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> tell my wife this, right? I haven't, I haven't I'm not abusive. I'm not abusive. Ha! You guys saw it. <laughs> right? How, yes. However, I will say this. If I ever got out of hand, if I was just getting too much, Rebecca has uh, James and Sean on speed dial. That, that is something that we said from the get-go. Not just being a pastor, just from the get-go, she's going to have two or three of the guys on speed dial in the event that I'm ever like going overboard and they can come in and wreck me. Period. Ladies, Try, try doing that, right? <laughs> the guy would be like, no, do it, do it. Number five, greedy. Greedy in terms of, oh, better yet, in terms of violence, the opposite it would be that they would be gentle. That doesn't mean that they can't have a firm word, but that they are gentle. That what motivates them isn't their own selfish ambition, but it is the grace of God. That is what motivates them. Number five, greedy. This is someone who uses ministry not only as a platform to establish their status, but even financial means. Some, some, some preachers on TV, I won't give names, but you know, some of those guys, right? That and I don't know their names, but you, would, you, you could look at that where they use the pulpit, they use ministry to elevate a certain status, to elevate finances, right? The opposite of this would be, uh, that would actually fall under ownership. The opposite of that is to be a steward. God says that we are to be stewards, that he has entrusted us with people, with things, all so that we can point others to the glory of God and to the work of his son, Jesus. That's what we mean when we're looking at conduct. Next section is godly character. Godly character. I want to talk a little bit about character. <clears throat> A character defined by Dallas Willard is a person, 
who a person is and what they can be counted on to do. What that tells me is that character is first developed over time. Character is discerned in community. That's why we find community to be so important to us. And character is evaluated under pressure. Now, what I love about that is that community fills in all three of those, right? Character is going to be, excuse me, character is going to be developed over a span of time. What better way than to have others there with you as your convictions mature, as you mature in your faith? What better way to evaluate how you handle pressure than with others around you, right? Character is developed over time, and over time, I would say, in community. And so Paul goes on to list a couple of characteristics. The first five that we looked at were things that, uh, that are not godly, and we looked at some of the opposite things. Now we're looking at the character of uh, the elder. The first one is that they are hospitable. Hospitable, that they welcome others, that they welcome strangers into their home, that they welcome other people into their home, that the credibility of the gospel is placed on the table for all to see, particularly in the hospitable environment of their home. Number two is that they are a lover of good. Now, when we say that, everyone's going to have an opinion on what they think good means. I would uh, submit to you that good would be consistent with what Scripture says is good. And for that, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Philippians 4, verse 8. And Paul writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any worthy of praise, think about these things. It is consistent with Scripture. And because it is consistent with Scripture, they will prioritize. Right? That's like an adult word. Right? Prioritize is serious. Right? That means the man who loves good in accordance with Scripture will have priorities. They will have priorities. Number three is that they are self-controlled. I would say that self-controlled and disciplined sound similar, but let me expand on them a little bit. That the person who is self-controlled, the godly leader, the godly pastor who is self-controlled, this is the individual who looks at things through the lens of the gospel. This is where they begin to prioritize things. This is where they are focused in light of what God has called them to do, in light of the mission God has placed them in, in light of the path that they are walking on, that they are self-controlled on here and free from distractions, right? Number four is that they are to be upright. And I would add four and five, that they are upright and holy. That means that they are committed to the pursuit of holiness, that they want their lives to not only be uh, uh, rooted in the gospel, but that they want their lives to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that they would be made into the image of Jesus, so that they would reflect Jesus to others, it's a man who has been saved by God's grace. It's upright and holy. And finally, someone who is disciplined. When we're talking about discipline, the difference in context here is that when we're looking at self-control, this is someone who's on a mission, has a goal, is free from distraction. When we're talking about someone who is disciplined, this is what Peter says when, uh, uh, this is what it means when Peter says that they abstain from worldly desires. 
that it's not just distractions that are out here, but it's also temptations that are out here. And so they flee those temptations. They choose to worship God in those moments that they are disciplined. Next section is godly conviction. So we've looked at the pastor's uh, first ministry. We've looked at the conduct. We've looked at uh, character. Now we're looking at godly convictions. This is where skill comes into play. Before diving into it, let's look at what conviction is. Conviction is produced as a result of God revealing himself through his word. That's Incredibly important. We're going to look at why in a bit. Conviction is produced as a result of God revealing himself through his word. There is no compromise here. There is no compromise. Either a godly pastor holds to biblical convictions firmly or he does not. Even if they're held loosely or haphazardly. That means that there's compromise. If there's compromise in one area, there's going to be compromise in others. And so here are the convictions in light of uh, holding God's word firm and trustworthy. Number one, that the pastor is able to teach. When we look at the office of elder and deacon, that's one of the differences, right? That the elders teach, teach and preach specifically, all right? That he is able to teach that he is able to teach sound doctrine, that he is able to teach because he holds the word of God firmly as revealed in the word of God. Number two, that they are ready to defend because they are in the word of God, because they hold the word of God firmly. They are ready to defend the gospel of Jesus. They are ready to defend what God's word says. They firmly believe through conviction what Paul says in 2 Timothy, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for rebuke, refuting, and teaching to equip the whole man. They are ready to defend the gospel because they find themselves in God's word. The godly pastor exhorts. It's words of encouragement. Sometimes that's a tough word. Sometimes it's a tender word. But he does so as revealed from scripture. The godly pastor convicts or refutes. He convicts because of what he sees, because of what has been revealed in Scripture, not just because he's trying to prove some point or be domineering, but because of what has been revealed in Scripture. Number three, the godly pastor opposes false teaching. You can oppose false teaching if you find yourself rooted and holding firm to the word of God. Don't tell me that you don't have time. Especially if you're a husband and or father. Don't tell me you don't have time. That was something you should have said years ago. Not now. You don't have time for it. And so with that, I'll close with two sections, one of which is not going to be on the screen. So I would ask that you just give me patience. So we have looked at, 
We have looked at uh, the, the, the pastor, the godly pastor's first church. We have looked at uh, their, their conduct, godly conduct. We have looked at godly character. We have looked at godly conviction of what's been revealed to them through his word. And so now as your pastor, I'd love to give you an exhortation. The first one, it's not bad, guys. I don't think it is. The first one is, what we've just walked through is the role, the function, the qualifications of a godly pastor. And while I've been the elder here, I simply want to say thank you. Thank you for allowing me to shepherd you. Thank you for allowing me to grow in the very little gifting that I have. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your pastor. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. And by God's grace, still being sanctified, particularly in my failures, um, particularly in my fav- uh, failures, and for that, forgive me, I apologize. My desire, in spite of my brokenness, is to give God all the glory and point you to fix your eyes on the finished work of Jesus. That is, that is my goal. Number two, as I mentioned earlier, the characteristics laid out in this section right, are for all Christians, are for all Christians to obtain. But you can only obtain these through the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And let's be real, some of these things you can do and not be a Christian, but your motivations are different. What motivates you to be hospitable is God's grace and holiness, right? What motivates you to pursue humility is that God has humbled you through his word. Number three, husbands, fathers. I told you I'd expand on this. Husbands and fathers, you, you are the spiritual leader of your home, not me. You are the spiritual leader of your home, not me. Me, you are to lead and love sacrificially. You are to be engulfed in the word of God. This is who you have been called to be. The first person that, uh, that wives or kids should go to when they have questions about scripture is dad. Not me, but Dad or your husband, if you don't have kids. Number two, or uh, I don't know what number I'm on. That's three, four. Young men, this is who you are called to be. So stop complaining about the life you wish you had. This is not man-up-ology. This is sanctifying biblical responsibility. That's what it is. That's all it is. I'm not telling you to man up. I'm telling you to adhere to who God has called you to be. Next one, because I forgot what number I'm on. Women. This is who your husband is supposed to be. So stop hindering him with disrespect. Stop hindering him with disrespect because he is not at your level. 
I've seen men attempt to lead and then be belittled by their wives, be embarrassed publicly by their wives. Yet you desire for a man to lead you the way Jesus leads his church. Your standard, if that's what we're going to call it, is tragically filled with pride and arrogance. Repent. Confess and repent. Fix your eyes on Jesus and see your man grow in his sanctification. Stand alongside him as he drops the ball, as he gets it the first time, as the light bulb turns in. Stand beside your man. When we look at the marriage that happens in Genesis and God calls woman to be with the man, right? The, the Hebraic translation for helpmate is that she fills in his gaps because we need it, right? Man, be beside him as he learns, as he fails, as he is growing. Be beside him and stop holding firm to your standard that is really rooted in pride and arrogance. Please, Please. Next one. Single women. This is who you're looking for. Verses five through nine. This is who you're looking for. This is who you're looking to. A man who is passionate about the supremacy of Christ, his word, and his glory. Please do not compromise. Do not compromise on this. Man, you want to be led, you want to see someone whose eyes are fixed on the person and work of Jesus first. That they will not compromise and you won't compromise on that. And in light of you not compromising on that, your eyes are fixed on the supremacy and glory of Christ. That is where your eyes should be. I know it's hard and I know sometimes it stinks, and I'd rather use another word. I know. But as your brother, as your friend, I am asking you, pleading with you, uh, man, I beseech you to place your eyes on the person and work of Jesus, that your joy would be filled because of your salvation and his work for you, in you, and through you. That is where I want you to find joy. Marriage or relationship does not complete us. It is the joy of Christ that does. And I would, man, I would ask you to surrender yourself to that. And finally, young men or men who potentially feel called to pastoral ministry. Here's what I would tell you. A man waiting on a call is not a man sitting still. I'll say it one more time. A man waiting on a call is not a man sitting still. The pastorate is not just going to fall into your lap. So serve in humility. Serve willingly. Serve with urgency. You want to go test your theology? Sign up for kids' ministry. Huh? Those six-year-olds are going to tell you how much you really don't know. Right? Man, you want to show me what it's like to be the body? Show up at 9 a.m. on Sundays to help James set up. Go there. Show me that. 
Well, I don't know if that's really my gift. Your gifting is not lifting. <laughs> Show me you can do that. Show me that you can jump on to kids' ministry. You want to test your theology? You want to test discipleship? And there's plenty of six, seven, eight-year-olds up there that need to be discipled. Huh? You want to be a, you want to be a, a, a father one day? There's like six, seven, eight-year-olds up there. Hey, they need to be discipled. They need to have consistent discipleship. They need to know who Jesus is. Huh? Go up there. Sign up. JC has the applications. Kids ministry. He'll sign you up in like a week. Sass, you'll be ready. Test your theology. Everybody's like, no, I don't know about it. Then why would we consider you? Or why even go that route? All right? I don't like sweating. The curse is to work, guy. All right? So lift chairs. Right? He's got, what do we got? We got flags out there. We got a bunch of stuff. James needs help. I mean, we're, it's not, these aren't necessarily like glamorous things, but these are necessary things. These are necessary things. And if we're going to hold firm to who we say we are as a family, then it best, best match up with our doctrine. Okay? And so here are the final thoughts. In his book, The Reformed Pastor, Richard Baxter writes, take heed to yourselves. He says, pay attention to yourselves. Lest your example contradict your doctrine. Lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues. This is the way to make men think that the word of God is but an idle tale. And to make preaching seem to better excuse me, to make preaching seem to better than, than, than prating. It's complaining, foolish talk, not really holding to it. It's something that's loose. A faithful and godly pastor leads and points people to fix their eyes on the person and work of Jesus, is led by the Holy Spirit, and leads for the glory of God and for the good of the people. Join me in prayer. God, we thank you for your word and inevitably how convicting it is. God, I pray that that conviction that we feel, that it would be rooted in the work of the Holy Spirit. That because of that conviction, we would be compelled to not only confess and repent of our sin, but that we would be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus. God, I pray that we would look at your word and ask tough questions. Ask tough questions, not just where am I missing it, but maybe even have tough conversations. Maybe not tough conversations, but uncomfortable conversations. This is the part where, where our doctrine lines up with our conduct. And some of those conversations need to be conversations where we are confessing our sin to one another, where we are in tears apologizing to one another. And at the same time, those are 
beautiful, wonderful conversations and opportunities for us to demonstrate the grace that you have demonstrated to us, to one another. God, I pray for, uh, I pray for families, for husbands and wives right now. I pray that husbands would be convicted to lead and serve sacrificially, to love sacrificially. I pray that wives would, um, would follow with great respect and, uh, uh, and great pride for their husband because they see their husband pointing them to Jesus. God, I pray for parents as they are consistently faced with doctrine and conduct on a daily basis, where there is that tension that you don't want to do what you believe in, or you don't want to do uh, what you just said not to do. I pray for parents as they invest into their children, as they teach their children. I pray for fathers as they teach their children, as they invest into their children, as they point them to Jesus. I pray for parents as a whole, as they love their family together. God, I thank you for our church. At the end of the day, this, this, belong, this church, uh, us as a congregation, we belong to you. God, I, man, number one, I'm so sorry where I dropped the ball. God, I am aware that I am totally undeserving, not just of the pastorate, but your mercy and grace. But you give it freely. And so for that, I say thank you. And I know that's not enough. I thank you for the congregation, for Storehouse Community, because you're at work in this church. You are transforming people into the image of your son, Jesus. You are compelling people to fix their eyes on Jesus. You are convicting people to find themselves in your word to learn more about you, to better understand themselves. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this, this, this scripture. God, as we transition into a time of tithes and offerings, I pray, Lord, that this would be not just a time of, of continued worship, but that this would be a time where, um, as mentioned earlier, our doctrine lines up with our conduct. And this is where we would openly uh, and publicly worship you by relinquishing the control we think we have, by giving sacrificially, by giving faithfully, and by giving cheerfully, all for the purpose of expanding your kingdom and sharing your gospel, bringing you fame. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.